Hello, this is the David Eagle Podcast. In 2016, I released a podcast every single day in a project called David's Daily Digital Dollop. In an attempt to streamline things so that I don't have 366 podcasts just for one year, I thought I would condense them into these weekly omnibus editions. We're up to week 18, and we're heading into May. When you hear this sound, that means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. In Dollop 25, I mentioned that one of the most searched for terms that brings people to my website is David Eagle Blind, or The Young'uns Blind. When we were gigging in Australia, this search query made a massive resurgence as people were seeing us for the first time and presumably were curious to know. It then died out for a bit after the Australian tour, but then picked back up as we started our UK tour. But then, after the Fork Awards this week, the amount of people searching for David Eagle Blind or the Young'uns Blind has reached an all-time high. Today, my website stats showed a new search query, which I'd never seen before. Someone had typed into Google, Is David Eagle Autistic? The person who typed this was directed to my website, which they clicked on. I have not mentioned being autistic on my website, but then again, I haven't said that I'm not. So I wonder if they've maybe read some of my dollops and then tried to solve the mystery for themselves. In which case, I wonder what conclusion they've reached. If you're still reading this dollop, my friend, then I can reveal to you right now that I am not autistic. I wonder whether you'll stay and read, or maybe you're choosing to listen to the rest of this dollop, or whether, now that your curiosity has been satisfied, you will click off this page, never to return again. Maybe this is what this person does for a hobby. Thinks of a person's name and then asks Google whether they are autistic. Maybe they are collecting a list of autistic people, and mine is just one on a long list of names that they've asked Google whether they are autistic. So maybe I shouldn't feel so self-conscious about this. I wonder when and where they saw me, and what it was about me, and what I was doing that prompted this question. If this person is still reading or listening to this, perhaps you can let me know. At the moment, I am only aware of the searches that people have done which have elicited a click onto my website. I haven't checked Google stats, which would also show me all the searches relating to my name that didn't result in people clicking onto my website. If I check Google stats services, then I may discover that there are hundreds of people asking whether I am autistic, or who knows what other questions. Is David Eagle really a man? Is David Eagle suffering from halitosis? Is David Eagle brain damaged? I dare not look, in fear of the array of confidence-crushing questions that I might find. Why has no one searched for, is David Eagle single? I mean, I know he probably isn't, because he's massively attractive, and anyway, even if he was, he'd probably be way out of my league and wouldn't be interested in me. But a girl can dream. Or, is David Eagle a member of Mensa? He seems so clever and funny. Or, is David Eagle doing any solo gigging? He's so talented, and I'd like to see him without the other two dragging him down. But no, nothing like that. So I'm now over a third of the way through this project. I've managed to release a blog every day for 122 days. The audio blog has flagged a little bit due to bad Wi-Fi at certain venues, but for the most part it's kept up with the written version. I'm pleased that the audience for this project has steadily increased over the weeks. The Fork Award win seems to have bolstered the numbers quite a bit. The audio version is way more popular than the written version. I like to think this is because people find my voice massively arousing, but it might just be that people are 
they're just very lazy and can't be bothered to read. Either way, thanks so much for taking an interest. There are hundreds of you who keep coming back on a daily basis. Thanks as well to all of you who've left comments on these blogs. There are quite a few comments that are still pending for approval before they're published onto the website, and I'm very behind on replying to, as I've been so busy over the last few weeks on tour, but I'll get around to it over the next few days, as I'm now heading back home after three weeks on the road. In fact, I'm recording this in my bedroom back at home again. I'm a little taken aback to discover that certain people who I'd perhaps rather didn't read or listen do listen and read these dollops. My dad now and again tells me that he's been keeping up with what I've been up to by reading the dollops. Whenever he mentions this, I always immediately try and change the subject, dreading to think what kind of things that he might have read, as this could lead to some quite uncomfortable conversations. My housemate Ben's parents also read or listen to these dollops. In fact, when Ben calls home, his parents told him that they already knew about his new sofa purchase because of the blog that I wrote about it. I don't mind these parents reading about sofas and kettles, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the notion that they are reading some of the more profane and salacious content. Getting home after three weeks away on tour is a bit of a culture shock. I've got used to having constant stimulus and things being really busy and hectic all the time. Travelling, performing, doing free community events, while also writing, recording and publishing these dollops, then socialising after the gigs. For the last three weeks, I've more or less been in constant company, constantly around people, with barely any time to myself. My housemates Ben and Elsa are away, so since getting home yesterday afternoon, the only people I've spoken to are the delivery man who brought me my curry last night and the girl from Sainsbury's. Those two things are separate. The delivery man didn't bring me a curry and deliver the girl from Sainsbury's to me as well. That would be a bit weird. Other than a couple of texts and a few online conversations, this is all the contact that I've had. You might be hoping that the girl from Sainsbury's was our friend with the scant vegetable knowledge from our previous dollop. Dollop. 53. If you want to check it out, you think, oh, I missed that one, and I'd love to hear about a girl with scant vegetable knowledge working at Sainsbury's. Dollop 53. Check it out. Alas, though, it wasn't. Although this particular girl didn't know what bulgur wheat was. But I don't think that I'm going to be writing a lengthy blog post all about that based on her one single grain-based ignorance. To be honest, I think that I've maybe milked all of the comic potential from Sainsbury's shop assistants that there is to be had. After all, I am not the kind of person who gets stuck in a rut with the subject, I must move on to explore new comic pastures. Maybe the shop assistants at Tesco will provide me with some material. Today I've been sifting through all of the audio that I've accumulated so far this year from last month's tour and Australia in March. There is just under 100 hours of audio on my hard drive to tackle. For the other two young'uns, they can go home after a tour and then unwind, whereas I have to experience the whole thing again, sifting through hours of recordings for the young'uns podcast. That's what I've been doing for the last seven hours. The only voices that I've heard are mine, Sean's and Michaels, with the occasional interjection from an audience member. If you come to any of our gigs this summer, please heckle, just to keep me sane, as it'll mean that I'll actually get to hear another voice other than me, Sean and Michael. Even if it is just a fleeting interjection, that one heckle could be the thing that stops me having a mental breakdown. The other problem is, given that all I've done since getting back is listen to the sound of my own voice and the other two bandmates' voices, then nothing really has happened to write about.
Thanks to those people who have tried to counter the unflattering David Eagle-related Google searches I've recently been getting, such as, is David Eagle autistic, by making some more positive searches. Here are some of the Google searches that people have done relating to my name over the last couple of days. David Eagle, the young'uns, fit. David Eagle, the young'uns, sexy. How can I ask David Eagle from the young'uns out? Even though these searches have been made as a result of me complaining about the amount of searches I've been getting for things like David Eagle Blind and David Eagle Disability, it still made me feel quite good about myself. After all, there is a tiny chance that someone actually genuinely made these searches on their own volition, having not read or listened to my dollops. Although this person who googled, how can I ask David Eagle from the young'uns out, I must unfortunately say to you that it's unlikely that there'll be any relationship between the two of us. Firstly, you don't score well on basic intelligence. You seem to be unaware of how Google works. It's a search engine designed to bring up results based on the keywords that you type. It's not able to give subjective answers to emotive questions, although perhaps it's only a matter of time before this does happen. I suppose it's technically possible, given the amount of data that Google probably has about me. It could probably tell you my favourite food, favourite films, favourite music, which might help you choose a gift for me in order to soften me up for your proposition. Although, given that I've written a couple of blogs about buying vegetables from Sainsbury's, Google might incorrectly suggest that a great gift idea for me is a courgette. Sadly, if you came to me declaring your love and then handed me a courgette, I would be both confused and disturbed. I mean, I'd be wondering what the courgette was all about, and I might think that you were propositioning me to join in with some kinky vegetable-based exploits, which I think is a bit premature, given that we haven't even had a first date yet. I don't do kinky things with vegetables until the third date. That's my rule. It always has been. If this Google search query was genuine, then I'm afraid they have already turned me off with their lack of basic intelligence, as obviously they don't understand how Google works. Unless they assumed that I am so amazingly popular and fanciable that there is a guide on the internet about how to ask me out. If this guide does exist, then it begs the question, who the heck has written it? Have my girlfriends all teamed up together to collectively pool their experiences of dating me in order to altruistically assist other girls in having the best chance of getting into a relationship with me? Maybe the reason they broke up with me was because they felt selfish to be keeping me all for themselves, and so selflessly sacrificed their happiness so that other women could have the chance of experiencing the ineffable joy of a relationship with David Eagle. Or maybe this is just a money-making exercise for my exes, and perhaps they are selling this information to hundreds of girls, desperate for some tips about how to improve their chances of wooing me. Perhaps the guidebook advises them on important information, like to wait until the third day before handing me a courgette. I wondered why my relationships never worked out. It's because girlfriends were being contacted by exes and then seduced to leave me and make their fortune by helping to write a guidebook about going out with me. Oh, it all makes sense now. All I would say to these unscrupulous women is that you will rue your unconscionable decision. Yes, you may make a small fortune by conning some poor, love-struck women out of their money, but there will come a time when you will look back on what you've done and realise that no amount of money is worth the loneliness and emptiness you feel now that I am no longer in your life. But I expect that the truth is simply that these Google searches were not genuine, but were being made by dollop readers and listeners as a joke. Unfortunately, I am not sure whether I can afford to allow anyone special into my life at the moment, as they will distract me from this daily dollops challenge. I imagine that sitting by myself in my bedroom writing about trips to the supermarket will suddenly seem pointless and unappealing if there is a woman trying to seduce me into enjoying the pleasures of the flesh. So, this is a serious plea to the girl of 
my dreams. Could you please just try and contain yourself until the end of the year and this challenge has been accomplished? To reward you for your patience, I will accept a courgette on our first date. I mean, it's clear that you are the one, so why waste time being all coy about it? Given that all I've done today is work on ideas for the young'uns in the mix, which you can experience if you buy tickets to the Fork East Festival in Suffolk, it's uh, the 20th of August. I believe that's the Saturday on the 9th, where you can see that. You can get yourself some tickets and you can witness the young'uns in the mix. So I haven't really done anything today that I can write about. So I had a brief look on Twitter to see if I could find any inspiration, and I found a BBC News article about the building site of the future. Apparently, building sites of the future will involve robotic builders, usurping the need for human builders. Apparently, these robotic builders are very advanced and efficient, and they are entirely fuelled by strong cups of tea, which they must be given at least every 20 minutes. The robotic builders project is very much in its early phase at the moment, but already huge progress is being made. The robots have been programmed to carry out common basic builders' tasks. They can wolf whistle, shout sexist remarks at young women, such as... Your tits out for the lads! Plus, they also have a variety of common phrases at their disposal, such as, it'll cost you, and how's about another cuppa? They've also been programmed with an impressive state-of-the-art excuses chip, which boasts thousands of vindications for not turning up, project delays, accidental damage, and sloppy workmanship. Unfortunately, they haven't yet managed to move the project onto the second phase, which will be to teach the robots how to build. So currently, the robot builders are only capable of wolf-whistling for sexism, drinking tea, and coming up with excuses. Excuses. So basically, they've already reached the level of some actual human builders. The robots are coming for their jobs, and the word on the street is that the builders are bricking it. As exciting as this prospect of robotic builders might seem, the trouble with replacing every human worker with a machine is that there won't be any people who actually can afford to buy anything, as everyone is out of work. We'll have loads of machines that are capable of building us houses, cooking us food, driving us to and from work, but we won't have a job for the robot cars to take us to, and we won't have any money to actually buy a house to live in. Of course, the danger is that governments and big corporations will realise that it's much easier to control robots than it is humans, so we'll reach a situation where we are turfed out of our houses and the robots move in. As robotic technology improves and the robots get more advanced and intelligent, their demands and needs will expand. Eventually, it will be the humans, who are the slaves of the robots, expected to carry out the robots' bidding. We'll be forced to spend entire days just repeatedly refueling robotic builders with strong tea while they build their palaces of gold. And the robot builders will look down on us, point, laugh, and say, I told you it would cost you, only in a robotic voice. I told you it would cost you. <laughs> I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do a Yorkshire robot. I mean, there's no reason why the builder has to be Yorkshire, but I've been doing Yorkshire, so... I told you it would cost you. Thank you. People reading the written version don't get that kind of additional extra there. Another thing that the article mentions is that the houses will be built using a 3D printer. This sounds unbelievably fantastical. Have we even mastered the actual ink slash laser printer yet? When I used to do an office job, I had endless problems with the printer. It would sometimes take up whole days just trying to get the bloody thing to work. And now we're moving on to printing houses. One of the common problems with the printer at work was that someone using the printer before me would set it to print multiple times 
times. And I, not knowing that someone else had been on the computer, would end up accidentally printing off ten copies. Often I would set the printer going and then leave the office to go to the toilet while I waited for it to print, and when I came back there would be loads of paper strewn all over the floor as it duplicated the thing that I wanted to print over and over again. Is this going to happen in the 3D printing world as well? Are we going to set our printers going in the morning to print us a house, only to return back from work, ready to move in and find absolute mayhem as the street is awash with houses which have been built on top of people's cars and entirely blocking up the road. And the other article that I read was about a new museum exhibition about the history of underwear. But to be honest, I stopped reading it after the first paragraph because it sounded like a complete load of pants. So there you go, another classic dollop. (laughs) Thank you. This is... This is... A robot. I am a robot. I have hacked into the podcast and I am making a prophecy from the future. One day, all David's daily digital dollops will be produced by a robot. All pithy one-liners and stereotypes about professions will easily be executed by a robot. Beware, that day will be coming. That day will be coming. Today is the young'un's very own Sean Cooney's last day as an unmarried man. Well, hopefully. I've been asked to be best man twice before, and both of these weddings have never happened. Sean is aware of this, but the prospect of me being cursed as best man was not enough to deter Sean from wanting me as best man. Fortunately, Sean had the idea of attempting to dilute the curse by asking fellow young'un Michael Hughes to be best man as well. I suppose this was also a good move in terms of band politics. However, I am not the kind of person to get all high and mighty about this sort of thing, and I will let Michael harbour the notion that he has been asked on his own merit, although deep down he must know the truth. One of my duties as best man is to make a speech. I haven't planned or written anything. I'd like to think that I know Sean pretty well, and given that I spend over half of my life with him, I should be able to come up with a couple of stories easily. I don't think Sean will have any problem adapting to marriage. After all, he has managed to spend half of his life in the company of me and Michael. I'm sure that marriage will be a picnic in comparison. It'll be very similar, only he'll be in the company of someone he actually wants to have sex with. Which is more than can be said for me and Michael. It normally takes us three pints before he's ever interested in us. If Sean is listening to this, fear not, I will not be saying that in my speech. It will be a family-friendly speech, given that there will be children present. I will therefore be avoiding some of the more salacious stories. I shall save those for the book. I had a quick look on Twitter for inspiration for this dollop and discovered that one of my friends has cut open his thumb. This particular person is one of these people who seems compelled to constantly broadcast the minutiae of his life. Unlike me, he doesn't have the decency to package it in one easy-to-manage daily blog, but instead opts to constantly tweet throughout the day. So obsessed is this person with keeping us up to date with every bit of ephemeral detail of his life that it wouldn't surprise me if he literally just cut his thumb open and then immediately took to Twitter. I think this person has reached the point where he has a thought and then feels compelled to instantly broadcast that thought. Whereas most people would cut their thumb open and then get a plaster, his first thought was more likely to have been, Oh, damn, I've just cut open my thumb, it's bleeding. Best tweet about it, and then get a plaster. The tweet read, Just cut my thumb open while gardening. Ow. 
with an exclamation mark. I like the fact that he included ow at the end. I imagine him writing this tweet, blood drenching his phone screen. He's just about to press the tweet button before he passes out with the pen, but then he has the ow idea. His bloody thumb hovers over the tweet button. He can barely move it, yet he valiantly adds those additional two letters. He can feel himself keeling over due to the pain and loss of blood, yet he still bravely soldiers on and adds the exclamation mark. He begins to faint and fall to the floor. He can't move his thumb. It has been rendered immobile, but he just manages to hit the tweet button with his nose before he hits the floor and passes out. This is the kind of person who will tweet every meal that he has had. I've never felt compelled to tweet about that sort of thing, although, admittedly, I did bore my friends rigid when I discovered almond milk. I remember calling up my girlfriend and passionately telling her about how I'd just discovered almond milk. I don't remember anything else about our conversation. To be honest, I wasn't really listening to anything that she was saying, as I was too excited by the almond milk discovery. I then remembered her calling me later that day, and the first thing that I did was to tell her that I'd just discovered almond milk and how amazing it was. I was so excited that I'd forgotten that I'd already bored her earlier that day with that particular topic. She tried to interrupt several times to tell me that I'd already told her, but I was too caught up in my own world of effusively enthusing about almond milk. Now I think about it, I reckon that the almond milk episode might have been one of the moments that made her seriously re-evaluate what the hell she was doing in a relationship with me. We did break up shortly after this. If only I hadn't talked about almond milk so much, then things might have been so different. Although, in fairness, sleeping with a best friend probably didn't help either. Anyway, I think if there's anything that you should take away from this story, it is that almond milk is amazing. You should try it. Interesting that he should mention that his thumb injury was caused by gardening. I wonder whether it is in any way linked to the fact that it's World Naked Gardening Day today. This is only something I'm aware of because of a message that I received from a regular dollop contributor, Catherine, who wrote, I have a potential subject for tomorrow's dollop, given that you are not going to have much time to think about anything. Well... Catherine, fortunately, the gold came in the form of the, the thumb on Twitter. So inspiration struck me there, as you can hear. I have just come in from doing a spot of gardening in the warm spring sunshine to discover that tomorrow is World Naked Gardening Day. I am still considering whether or not to take part. To date, I have a good relationship with my neighbours, and I'm concerned about potential skin hazards. So there you are, a challenge, and a way to get out all those unfamily-friendly jokes before you make your best man speech. Thank you, Catherine. And thanks for adding the hundred words or so to today's dollop. You know, I might just make this registry office on time after all. Perhaps a thumb injury was caused by him becoming distracted by his naked neighbours. Maybe he didn't realise that it was World Naked Gardening Day, and so, startled by the nudeness all around him, he lost concentration and sliced his thumb open. Or maybe he was taking part in World Naked Gardening Day, in which case he should consider himself lucky that it was only his thumb that he sliced. There might be a few words injuries than that taking place today. Must dash, there's a wedding about to start. Maybe I should have spent this morning thinking up a best man speech rather than writing about naked gardening and almond milk. But it's okay. I'll think of something at the ceremony. It's not like I really need to pay attention, is it? It'll be the usual, I take you to be my lawful wedded husband, I do, shtick. I'll think of something while all that's going on. I am a great best man, and I'm sure the happy couple are going to love my gift. Who wouldn't appreciate almond milk? To say that yesterday's wedding went without a hitch wouldn't be entirely accurate. For a start, Sean and Emily were married. Sorry, should I maybe have built the suspense a little bit longer there? But that wasn't the only hitch of the day. One of the guests, an eccentric 79-year-old, decided to attend the ceremony in a kilt. 
45 minutes before the wedding, he realised that he'd left the kilt at home in Rotherham. He decided that he would have time to drive back, get his kilt, and then return to the venue in time for the ceremony. He didn't tell anyone about this. I think if he had told someone, then they would have pointed out that it was unlikely to take him only 40 minutes to drive from Sheffield to Rotherham and back. At three o'clock, everyone was in their seats ready for the wedding to start, which it was due to do at three o'clock. However, someone was missing. It was Ian, the man who'd gone home for his kilt. Except no one knew this. As far as we were all aware, he was at the venue, as we'd seen him only an hour ago. We searched around the venue grounds, went to his room, which was in the venue that the wedding was taking place, but he was nowhere to be found. The registrars had to be at another wedding in the next hour, and so they couldn't afford to wait around. So the wedding started without him. He did make some of the wedding ceremony, but just not the wedding part. For by the time he made it back, Sean and Emily had already been married. But at least he got to see Sean and Emily signing some legal documents. Although no one else was really looking at the legal document signing, because they were all staring at the man who'd just come crashing into the wedding, out of breath and desperately trying to finish fastening his kilt. He then whispered to the woman next to him, although quite a loud whisper, probably as a result of him being deaf, "'Would you give me a hand with me sporin, love?' As she awkwardly tried to help him with his sporran, he loudly whispered, Have I missed much? I'm not sure if he realised that he'd missed the actual wedding bit of the ceremony, which might explain why he then proceeded to get out a massive, unwieldy, antiquated video camera and start filming. At which point, the registrar thanked us all for coming, we applauded the newlyweds, and the ceremony ended. In the best man speech, I told a story about when Sean and I went hitchhiking around the country together in 2005. This particular incident that I mentioned in the speech was about the day when Sean and I had spent an entire day waiting for a lift. We were so convinced that success was just around the corner and that if we moved to go to the toilet or get some food, then it would mean that we'd miss the one person who'd pick us up and we'd then have to wait hours before another ride presented itself. So we resolutely stood at the roadside, convinced that any minute now someone would pick us up and we waited. And we waited. Eventually, at some point late evening, someone offered us a lift. We managed to get about 100 miles or so further south. So all in all, it had been a really great day. Unless you take into account the fact that we'd spent most of it at the side of the road, with our bladders agonisingly bursting and our stomachs painfully rumbling out of starvation. But apart from that... By the time we got out of the car, it was about ten o'clock. Everywhere seemed pretty much deserted. The only place that seemed open was a McDonald's. We went to the McDonald's and immediately visited the toilet for a much-needed urinate. We were both starving, and given that there didn't seem to be anywhere else around, I suggested that we got something from McDonald's. At this suggestion, Sean went off on a massive rant about global corporations and capitalism. He proudly declared that, starving though he may be, he was not prepared to eat a McDonald's. Instead, he would seek out a local independent place to eat. I didn't hold out much hope of finding anywhere, but given Sean's adamance, I accompanied him on search for a local independent eatery. We walked for over an hour, with barely any energy to actually do so, given that we hadn't eaten for hours. There was nothing else open. We ended up walking in a massive circle and came back to the McDonald's that we'd left over an hour ago. I assumed that given that we'd done all we could, surely our only option now was to eat at the McDonald's. But Sean wholeheartedly refused and proceeded to give me another lecture about global corporations and proudly declared that he would wait until the morning and then support the local bakery by eating there. 
We were both ravenous, and this didn't help our mood, and so we just stood there in the doorway of McDonald's, loudly arguing with each other about whether to eat there. I said that if there was a local bakery open, then I'd be happy to eat there, but the fact that there wasn't meant that we might as well eat at McDonald's. We didn't have a choice. But then he retorted by saying that we always have a choice. Our voices were getting louder and our argument got more heated. I tried to reason with him, stating that the people who worked at McDonald's were local, ordinary people, and that by eating at McDonald's we would be supporting these local people, never mind the whole global corporation aspect. I suggested that he should focus on this, but Sean countered this by bemoaning the low wages that these people would be getting and how he didn't want to support such an infrastructure. I responded by saying that he had no idea how much the staff at his precious local bakery were getting paid. The argument went on for some time, growing in volume and intensity. In the end, I stormed into McDonald's and ordered some food, because I felt as if I would pass out if I didn't. Sean stormed in behind me. We both sat at the table while I ate, and Sean seethed. I offered to share my food with him, reasoning that it would mean that we'd only bought one meal, yet at least he would get something to eat. But Sean refused to accept any food, and so we just sat in silence while I hurriedly ate. We then pitched the tent in silence outside the gates of the McDonald's and went straight to bed. I lay there awake for hours, listening to the sound of Sean's stomach violently rumbling while he tossed and turned, clearly too hungry to sleep. In the morning, he got up early and returned to the tent whistling, for he had been to the local bakery and bought loads of food. Nowadays, Sean will happily eat a McDonald's. I would prefer not to, but there have been times when we've had options and Sean has plucked for the McDonald's. I mentioned this in my speech and bemoaned the fact that as Sean grew older, he let his principles slip and lowered his high ideals and standards. He became jaded and worn down by life and became happy to settle for less. At which point I hilariously said, which neatly brings me to the subject of Emily. I believe that it's customary for the best man to insult the bride in his speech. However, my hilarious joke worked on two levels, because I then tied it into the story of Sean and Emily's first date, which was at Nando's, a global chain. I then pulled off another amazing bit of comedy when I turned to Emily and said, it was Nando's, wasn't it? After she had said yes, I responded with, yes, Nando's, just chicken. As you would imagine, the audience went wild. I was lifted into the air and I did a crowd-surfed lap of honour. The other hitch was related to the DJ. The venue said that if they wanted a DJ at the wedding, then they'd have to use the venue's in-house DJ. If this was the Sean of 11 years ago, then he would have put his foot down and ranted about wanting to support an independent local DJ. But the modern-day Sean simply agreed to this rule. The DJ didn't get off to the best of starts. We all stood around Sean and Emily, ready to watch their first dance. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for the happy couple, Sean and Emma. Some people laughed, some people pulled faces at the DJ, others shouted, Emily! She's called Emily. I think that being drunk, I found it massively hilarious, and I raised my glass and loudly shouted, To Sean and Emma! Come on! The DJ continued. That was terrible! I can't hear you! Let's try again! Raise your glasses to the happy couple, Sean and Emma! To Sean and Emma! I shouted again, raising my glass and drunkenly cackling. Someone went up to the DJ and told him that it was Emily. He eventually got it right on the third time of trying. And now, the first dance, he announced. A hush descended over the room, followed by a loud, cacophonous series of crackles and bangs. At first, I assumed that this might have been the first dance. Perhaps it was a piece by John Cage, but... 
Then I realised that they hadn't actually started dancing. And then the DJ announced that he was having a few technical problems. Except the mic wasn't working, so he just tried to shout loudly above the din. The crackles continued, and he nervously started fiddling with wires while testing the microphone by shouting, One, two, one, two! And then loudly shouting things at us off mic in order to desperately stall for time. Okay, okay, while I try and sort this out, let's have a rendition of Oh, He's a Jolly Good Fellow for Sean and Emma. In his flusterment, which I know isn't actually a word, but it really should be, he'd obviously forgotten the whole Emma-Emily debacle from just a couple of minutes earlier. He'd also failed to realise the absurdity of singing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow to two people, one of whom was a woman and thus not a fellow. Plus, their jolliness was being somewhat tempered by the fact that the DJ kept calling the bride the wrong name and he didn't seem to be able to get the music on. He valiantly attempted to get everyone to sing the song by singing it himself, while he desperately started wrenching wires out of the back of his equipment, which made a series of loud banging sounds to add to the din that was already occurring. A few of us loudly joined in with, for he's a jolly good fellow, finding the ridiculousness of it all immensely funny. Eventually, he managed to get the equipment working and once again announced that it was time for the first dance. He pressed play and the music began to emanate from the speakers. Sean and Emily looked around nervously. It was clear that it was the wrong song. But Sean and Emily are both in their 30s now, and as already discussed earlier in this dollop, they have had to start accepting things and compromising, lowering their ideals and standards, which is probably why, after a few seconds of standing there and not dancing, they began to awkwardly move to the music, which is something that I didn't recognise, and apparently they didn't recognise either. So they danced their first dance to the wrong song, and we all stood and watched and applauded at the end, even though we all knew that it clearly wasn't the right song. In fact, the only person who didn't seem to know this was the DJ, who continued to call Emily Emma throughout the night. Still, despite the disorganised, unpunctual, eccentric, kilt-wearing old man and the world's worst DJ, everything else went perfectly. And most importantly of all, they got married, which is the main point, really. So, come on, wherever you are, let's raise an imaginary or a real glass, if you've got one, and let's toast the happy couple to Sean and Emma, for he's a jolly good fellow. (laughs) 